Uh, all right. Hi. Welcome to No Wristbands. We drink for free. This is our inaugural episode. And being as such, we thought it'd be a good opportunity to tell you why we named the podcast that. So I'm Mark Joyner. I'm here with Papa Novak. And Moran is over there on the keys. Uh, he is our engineer at present. So the reason we came up with the name was we had a very drunken night many moons ago. Jeff Tweedy was doing a record release show at The Hideout. And we were like, we got to be there. Jeff needs us. Of course he needs us, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and so... We got there early. We got there so early. It's raining. Yes. It's November. It's probably like 45 out. And uh, we stood in line. We're like, nobody's here. I can't believe this. We're getting into this thing. And they come... People come up, get right in. We're like, what's going on? We go to the door. The guy says, do you have any wristbands? And we said, well, no. And he goes, wristbands are required to get in. And uh, it's it fueled a night of fury and drinking. And the genesis of this podcast came from that. So What would we do after that? We went to Keenan's. We went to uh, my favorite dive bar uh, at the corner. Well, not the corners, but it's on Ashland at Irving Park, basically. Great, great spot. If you like frozen pizza, please stop on by. <laughs> <laughs> Wide variety of real shitty beers. Yes. Uh, and we drank a lot of them, oh, and we, we came up with this idea. Yes, we did. We drank them out of special export, actually. Which is yes. Anytime you can do that, you know it's a good night. So the genesis of this podcast was formed, and uh, I'll let Papa here explain our, our, our reason for being. Yes, indeed. Um, um, I've, I've, I've always had a huge interest in music. We wanted to do something to help support the local community, um, talk to Mark, talk to Mike, um, and we hatched this plan to do this podcast. And, and what we're looking to do is to uh, uh, put a spotlight on a lot of the things that are going on in the, in the local Chicago music scene. Um, you know, a lot of the independent venues, the people behind them, the, the radio, uh, record stores, and of course, you know, local bands. So, uh, so that's going to be our goal in, in uh, these podcast episodes. Yeah, so perfect timing as it was, COVID came around. Uh, so now they need our, our help more than ever. So Absolutely. anywhere we can jump in and, and talk to people, uh, we'd love to do so. So if you ever have anybody you want to send our way, please hit us up on Instagram or hit us up on, on Twitter, and we'd be happy to, to speak with anybody and everybody. This week, we're actually speaking with Sean Campbell, who is the founder and uh, DJ and uh, general manager, general manager, anything, any superlative you can throw her way. She does all those things for Chirp Radio, which is a local community radio station here in Chicago. Uh, really fascinating story uh, with her hearing about her her start, early start, starting in Lafayette, Indiana, finding her way back to Chicago, her time with WLUW and, at Loyola, and then eventually taking that that plunge and creating her own radio station. So it's a really uh, interesting conversation about the power of local radio why it's beneficial over over those big dogs like B96, 103.5, KISS FM. So uh, I learned a lot in it. Uh, most of all, she her, her go-to drink is the House Red at the Metro. Hey, don't re- be, be uh, uh, revealing all Sorry, the secrets. Sorry, you're right. Come on. I, I actually I, I tweeted at them to try and get what that House Red was. They haven't gotten back to me. So <laughs> Metro Chicago, if you're listening, please let me know. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's a really engaging conversation. It runs about an hour or so. If you have the time, please sit back, enjoy, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you in those comments further on down the line. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, first and foremost, Sean, for coming on the pod today. Uh, we're very excited to hear all about Chirp Radio and hear about your journey to creating Chirp and just your experience with the Chicago music scene Uh we are a Chicago music podcast, so we're looking forward to hearing about your journey today. So uh, let's let's take it away. So at what point uh, did you decide like, hey, radio is where I want to go. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I was 10 years old. I am <laughs> one of those weird people who I always knew what I wanted to do. Um, music was always a part of my life and my parents always played music at home. And at some point really early on, I just thought like, wow, what a great job to be able to play music and talk about it and get paid for it. And that was what I wanted to do from the time I was really young, like fifth grade, 10 years old. And when I you know, got to high school where other people were working in fast food and things like that, I never had a job where I didn't have a microphone. <laughs> nice. Uh, so when, when was your first step into the world of radio? You, you said like in high school, you had a radio, uh, a microphone when walk me through that. 
Yeah, it wasn't radio per se at that point, um, because in addition to being a music fan, I'm actually a huge sports fan. And for a while, I thought that I wanted to pursue a career in sports broadcasting. So my first jobs were I was the PA announcer for Mendota Little League. So, yeah, so I got to say a lot of please return the foul ball. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I was the PA announcer for Mendota Girls Basketball. And I was the backup PA announcer for Mendota Boys Basketball, which was, you know, higher profile. And so I, I did a lot of PA announcing when I was in high school. Uh, so are you a Chicago, you're a Chicago sports fan? Absolutely. Uh, baseball? I am a Cubs fan. I am a lifelong <laughs> Cubs fan. Controversial. Controversial. <laughs> That's okay. We Mark can... is a huge Sox fan. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of the five in town. It's been, been great. Well, you know, no, I mean, in 2021, being a Sox fan is an exciting thing. And I've been following the Sox this year because I think that they have so much promise. They're an exciting team. So even though I'm a Cubs fan at heart, I am a baseball fan, um, you know, first and foremost. And so I can appreciate good baseball being played, whoever it is. I, I, that is the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me, a purist. <laughs> so are you like, uh, and I promise we'll get back on track in a second. Are you like, are you like, I hate the DH or... Pitcher should bat or DH for everybody. I hate the DH. Pitcher should bat. And there's far more strategy in the National League than there is in the American League. So I was I was happy. I was surprised, but happy to see the DH go away in the National League this year. I think it's coming. I think it's probably inevitable. It's not going to kill me if it happens. But I really uh, appreciate the decisions managers have to make when you have the pitcher batting. And I think that there's just an, uh, a whole area of complexity in the National League that doesn't exist in the American League. I would agree with you. Uh, that's what I keep telling myself. That's why it's taking Tony LaRue so while to get ramped up. I'm like, he just, he's been the NL for so long, but yeah. Cause I was going to say, you know what? I really hate the runner on second base and extra innings. There you go. Yes. Oh, terrible. Why? That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. That'll be the next pod. Uh, (laughs) so when did you step in and start doing radio? Well, I went to college and I, I knew that I wanted to do radio in college. So because I knew I wanted to do it as a career. So when I picked a college, I picked a college that had a radio program where I could be on the air as a freshman. And that was entirely my decision when I was picking colleges. Like that was what I was looking for, a place that I could be on the air for four years. And, you know, it evolved what I wanted to do on the air because I did do I I called baseball games. I did play by play for baseball games and I was on a sports talk show uh, my freshman year. But I also just was always a music fan throughout the entirety of it. And as I made my way through college radio and realized that there was a whole world of radio and music that, um, you know, wasn't represented by what I was hearing in mainstream commercial radio that I'd grown up with. I became more and more intrigued by that, that there was all this music that wasn't on the radio when, you know, we were talking about, again, commercial radio, top 40 radio. Mm-hmm. And the more that I delved into that, the more interested I was. Yeah, I, uh, I totally, I blew my mind. So I did high school radio in, uh, in beautiful, scenic LaGrange, Illinois, uh, WLTL. Ah. remember... The uh, the first time be, being like, OK, here are all our albums and being like, I don't know any of this stuff like this stuff's on the radio. This, it's on our radio. OK, <laughs> yeah. Um, so when did you take that pivot from being a DJ to being like, hey, I want to be behind the scenes and, and trying to establish like a radio station? I'm sure we're getting there. But like, were you did you take that transition to being like a music director to being a program director, being a general manager? How'd that work? Well, I've always had an interest in both or, you know, from probably college radio onward, I always had an interest in both. Being on the air is super important to me. I love being on the air. And to me, that's what radio is all about. So uh, it's always been interesting to me over the years as I've worked in different areas of radio, from college radio to commercial radio to non-commercial radio, like so many music directors if they have the opportunity, opt not to be on the air. And I understand because there's a ton of work. And when I was a music director, it did sometimes make me, being a music director can make you not enjoy music um, as sort of a personal pursuit because it's your job and you listen to so much intentionally because it's your job. But I always have loved being on the air. And so I never felt like it was an evolution away from being on the air, but just... The idea of being, 
I, I, when I was in college radio, I went to a college that had a program that was very intentional about training you how to be on the air at commercial radio and setting your expectations properly for that. And so we were taught, like, you will not get to choose the music that you play. You will not get to choose what you're doing. You will not get to, like, be, like, on the artistic side, the creative side of the radio station, most likely. You will be doing what somebody over you is telling you to do. And that never really seemed acceptable to me. Sure. <laughs> and Initially, I thought, well, you can counter that by being a music director. The music director is the person who gets to make the call about the music that's being played on the radio station. So you have a lot of power. You have a lot of control about what the station sounds like. And that was what I did first. I was on the air at Commercial Alternative in the early 90s, which was an exciting time to be in Commercial Alternative radio. Especially in Chicago. Um, yeah, I wasn't in Chicago at that point. Um, my first job out of college was Lafayette, Indiana. Oh, okay. Not even um, Lafayette. Well, it, it, it was all the same market. So Lafayette, West Lafayette. Yeah, it's Purdue University is there, you know. So it's it's a fairly reasonable small market for alternative in 1993, 1994 when I was there. And there was, you know, there was compared to today, especially a fair amount of freedom. So we played everything from the Indigo Girls to Rage Against the Machine on that station, because alternative meant so many different things at that point. You know, you're playing Nirvana and you're playing Juliana Hatfield. Um, you know, it could go so many different ways. And so it was an interesting station. But at the end of the day, it was owned by a guy who controlled the, the purse strings and he decided that after about a year of doing it, he wasn't making the money that he had hoped and he pulled the plug on it. And so even though we thought that this was a really good and creative and interesting commercial alternative outlet, um, like I had no control over that, uh, that decision. And so I was 23 years old. I had managed to get my first job in radio to get a promotion to be a music director. You know, I was a 22 year old music director. I was the only woman music director on the alternative panel at that point, 54 stations across the country. Wow. And then they shut the station down. And, you know, I had friends who hadn't yet graduated from college who were a year behind me. And I'd gone through this whole process and had the chance to become really cynical about it. And <laughs> so yeah. in the, end, the uh, commercial alternative actually was commercial. It was a commercial radio station. Yeah. So I, I would think that, uh, you know, being on the air, being a DJ, whatever, has got to help you a lot being a program director or being a general manager or being a leader of, of, you know, of your team or whatever. Right. Because that's what puts you in touch with your listeners. And you hear from the listeners, you hear their thoughts about what you're playing. You hear their thoughts just about the station in general. And I just think being on the air, it, it is, it's really crucial to kind of have an understanding of how people are feeling about the station and getting those reactions in real time. And that's always been so important to me. And I feel like I've had these notions about radio and what it should be from very early days. And like radio has these tremendous strengths, which is it's live, it's local, it's intimate. It's in real time. People have this very close personal relationship with their radio stations. They listen to you. And I did overnights for a number of years. And I think the relationship that you as a DJ have with your overnight listeners in particular is very intimate and like very personal, sometimes to a, an uncomfortable level. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that um, really just kind of having a feel for how people react to the station um, and, and that relationship that they develop and how they feel that they know you when you're on the air, um, that really matters. And that is a power that radio has. And radio, commercial radio in particular, has been so willing to cede that power over the last 25 years. And it's so short-sighted. And it's so wrong because these are the things that set radio apart from Spotify or for, you know, you're, you know, listening to music on your phone, however you might do it, or from any streaming service like Pandora that will only ever introduce you to music that sounds just like what you already like and that has no humanity to it, that has no personal connection. I think it's crazy that commercial radio has so largely given up on these features because this is what sets radio apart. Couldn't agree more, especially when like you get in your car and you hear, and I don't want to like blast anybody, but like you hear the same pop song 
when you get in the car, when you get to where you're going, when you get back in the car, you're like, how did that song play three times in 45 minutes? Like, I will never understand that. That's not what I want when I listen to the radio. Um, how have, how have your thoughts about radio evolved over the time? You're, you're very impassioned and I love that. I'm feeding off of that. And you're like, God, I want to get back on the radio right now. So, uh, <laughs> Were, uh, how has this evolved over time? Like you're 22, you're 23, you, the station closes down. Where do you go next? Do you, do you like, now I feel like I have to do this more than ever. Are you defeated? Where do we go from there? Yeah, no, I, I still like, it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. I never considered doing anything different. And I really, what I found being in Lafayette was how badly I missed Chicago. Um, I grew up in North central Illinois and I went to college in the suburbs Um I always wanted to get to Chicago. That was always my goal. And I had gone, you know, and, and seen so many shows. I interned at WXRT when I was a senior in college and had some really great opportunities to be involved with a ton of live shows and see a ton of live music and just really felt that I was at, you know, such a, a sort of center of great live music, um, both, you know, just Every touring band, of course, is going to come to Chicago, but also just so much great local music. And it hurt to leave. And I had always, again, because my college radio program was so focused on teaching you how to work in commercial radio, they had really hammered it into your head. No, you're going to go to Lafayette, Indiana, and then you're going to go to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and then you're going to go to Milwaukee, and then you're going to go to Detroit. And, you know, then you're going to go to Philadelphia. And then maybe in eight to 10 years, you'll be in Chicago, but you better be prepared to move every year to two years and move up each time. And after a year in Lafayette, I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to go to Fayetteville, Arkansas. Arkansas, you know, I don't want to go to Huntsville, Alabama. And so I decided to do it the hard way. So I moved back to Chicago and I decided I would just try to kind of part-time it and, and, and put together a bunch of different part-time jobs and hope that eventually I would work my way up. And I did that for a bit and I was working these radio jobs in the suburbs, like at WCBR, which was a really good station in Arlington Heights, the bear, but I was making $7 an hour doing overnight, six hours a night. So, you know, you're working like, you know, like, like, um, 36 hours a week, but you're making $7 an hour. And when you do the math, that does not pay the bills. And I would actually like when I was driving to Arlington Heights, I would scoop my hand, I would stop at the toll booth and I would open my car door and I would scoop my hand on the ground to grab change to throw into the toll booth because I was so broke that I could not pay my tolls. And, um, you know, so I was trying to do it that way and that was super hard. Um, and I decided to go to grad school and I decided I would try to focus on broadcast journalism because I figured that would broaden my horizons a little bit. Maybe I could do radio news and I could still be in radio. It wouldn't be music, but it would still be radio. And that, that, that was enough for me. So I went to Northwestern and I did a master's program in radio TV film. And I did a couple of internships, which was really non-traditional in a master's program. I interned at Channel 2 News and I interned at News Radio 780 WBBM. WBBM, what's it coming? Yeah, and um, I really, I actually really enjoyed my time at News Radio 780. It um, really spoke to my sense of order, you know, <laughs> traffic and, and weather together on the 8th, everything yeah. in its place. <laughs> um, so it was a completely different thing than uh, music radio, but I came out of my master's program with a tape for, for, for broadcast journalism, and I applied to uh, news jobs in the suburbs at a time when those suburban stations still existed. They're almost all gone now. And I got a job as a news anchor and reporter at a full-service AM station in St. Charles, Illinois. Wow. And so I was the afternoon news anchor and reporter at AM 1480 for about a year. And I did that. And at the end of that year, I went back to News Radio 780 and said, hey, I'd really like to apply for a writer position at News Radio. And because I'd had a really positive internship opportunity and built up some, some good connections there, they said, sure. And I took the writer's test and 
passed the writer's test and ended up being a news writer at News Radio 780 for about a year and a half. Um, but while I was there, I really missed music radio and really um, wanted to get back to it. And I knew that WLUW, which was a community radio station out of Loyola University, I knew that they took volunteers that were not students. And I went to WLUW just to find out about being a volunteer and being able to be on the air and play independent music and, and be a DJ again. And I told them a little bit about my background when I went in to talk about being a volunteer. And they said, we have a job opening if you'd be interested in applying for it. It sounds like you'd be really well qualified. Um, and I applied for it. And I ended up being the program director at WLUW for eight years. Wow. So uh, is this, this gets us closer to 2007 when, when Chirp becomes a, a, the bubble starts going with that, right? So right. Um, at what point were you like, hey, I want to do my own thing. I want to chart my own course. Well, the thing is with any radio station that you work at, commercial or non-commercial, the person who owns the station ultimately controls your fate. And that was the situation that we found ourselves in at WLUW. I loved that job and I worked so hard at that job for eight years. Uh, a couple of years in, the university decided that they didn't want to pay for the station anymore, that they felt like, oh, radio stations, aren't those supposed to make money, not cost money? <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, that's what we were told. And I had such, I had such a great group of volunteers and we had built up such a good thing and, you know, had a real following. Um, we'd, we'd created this station that had this really intense following and it would appear in the reader personals ads <laughs> as a signifier, you know, back in the day, this is like 1999, 2000. And I felt like that was a true measure of success because I remember looking at readers, reader personal ads and WXRT would be that indicator. And a couple of years later, when I was running WLUW, I started seeing WLUW in the, the reader ads. And I'm like, this is what I've been striving for. <laughs> and, and so, you know, we didn't want to let it go. And so we worked so hard and the university ended up entering into a partnership with WBEZ um, that we were skeptical of at first, but actually it turned out to be really positive. And what WBEZ did is they said, we'll give you five years. We're going to teach you how to be a fundraiser and we'll give you five years to raise more and more money each year toward uh, the goal of in the fifth year breaking even and being able to pay for the station. And I did that. Um, you know, it was myself and one other colleague managing a staff of about 150 volunteers. And each year we raised more money. And in 2007, in June, June 30th, when um, the fiscal year closed, we balanced our budget. In that fifth year, we raised $250,000. And two days after we did that, the university said, we don't want to do this anymore. We're backing out of this agreement that we have with WBEZ and we're going to fire the staff. And... <laughs> And that was just a couple of days before Pitchfork, um, where we were doing a record fair. And so I had to go into Pitchfork knowing that uh, the university was pulling the plug on this notion of WLUW as a community radio station and all the stuff that I'd worked for for the past five years to get to this point where we could be fiscally independent. And um, so at that point, I was like, you know what? I never want to be in this position again. I never want to be at the whim of an owner who has control of a station and can pull the rug out from under you, regardless of how hard you've worked and how much you've invested in it. And so I just said, you know, I'm going to start a completely independent station at this point. And I knew a little bit about low power FM and that the movement had started in the late nineties and early two thousands. And I knew that there were no low power FM uh, licenses available in big cities, but I knew that there were ways to do it. And um, about a week after that all went down with Loyola, I registered um, the Chicago Independent Radio Project as a name with the state of Illinois and told the people at WLUW because about half of those people were not students. They were community volunteers. And I said, I'm going to start my own thing. Come with me if you want. And that was the start of Chirp. That was in um, July and August of 2007. That's amazing. So um, how, what in you took you to be like, a lot of people have the, the idea of something, but very few people take it and get it across that finish line. And you have successfully done that. So what in you was like, I got this. 
I know what I'm doing. No big deal. I can start a radio station. I never for a minute thought that I wouldn't. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I just really, I just believed in it so strongly. And I think that the feedback and the response that we'd gotten at WLUW, how much people cared about that radio station, how much it meant to them. Um, it just seemed insane to me that you could look at the third largest market in the country and see that there was not a truly independent radio station in the third largest market in the country where there's such a great music scene and there's such a hunger for that. And so I felt like, of course, there's the audience there. I know there's the audience there. They've proven it to me. And the fact that I had been trained to fundraise from those people over that past five years was instrumental because I'm like, well, I can raise funds. I can raise money to do this because you have to have money to be able to do it. It's just a fact. You don't have to have millions of dollars, but you have to have thousands of dollars. And so I felt like, well, I have access to these people who are passionate about this thing. I have access to, you know, a hundred or so people who are passionate about it as volunteers who will be there for me from the beginning to start this thing up. And I don't know, it just, I, I feel like I've been such a student of radio from the beginning. I actually, a few years ago, I found this, um, this, this, I don't even know how to describe it. This piece that I wrote that I sent to radio station owners around 1996, 1997, when I would hear that they were starting a new radio station. It's like this three or four page document that I wrote about like, this is what I think a radio station in Chicago should be. And I would just mail it off to station owners. Manifesto, right? It kind of. And like, I, like I, I clearly thought that like I, as at that point, you know, like as a 25 year old, 26 year old fan of radio, like, I, I'm going to tell you what you should do with this multi-million dollar property that you own. Um, and I found it a few years ago. I'm like, well, this is exactly what I think now. <laughs> like, I could pan this out right now. And this is the basis for Chirp. So I don't know. It was just always in me. It was always something that I felt so strongly about. So, so did, you know, obviously you had done this, you had spent the five years, you raised the money, you proved you could, you, you could run a station, you could, you know, you could fund a station, you had tons of volunteers, but w when you're coming up with this new idea, are there people you're using their blueprint, people who have done it before? Did you have people helping you to, to make this transition or is it just here, Sean's going after it and that's it? I don't really think, and, and to this day, I actually just had a conversation with somebody recently about like how I don't feel like we have any exact peers. Like there are certainly community radio forerunners uh, who do great work, but I don't think there's any station that is a pure model for what we do. And I think, again, like when I started this effort, um, when I decided I wanted to start a station and build a station from the ground up, a lot of it just came out of being a student of radio and understanding, like, I just always, from the beginning, I wanted to understand all the legal aspects. And, you know, when I was in college radio, I really took a lot of time and effort to understand the, the legal aspects of running a radio station, the licensing and the expectations, the reporting. I worked with our, um, our broadcast engineer at my college radio station to, I mean, I'm no broadcast engineer. I don't want to represent myself as that, but to understand a lot of just kind of the basics of putting a studio together and, and being able to make some minor fixes and things. And, you know, just having kind of a, a like a, a from the heart view of what programming should be and how it should connect to the community. I just feel like um, I, I just had strong feelings about those things and strong convictions that I had clearly been able to convey to um, the group of people that I worked with at WLUW. And I feel like we all worked together to kind of build a programming philosophy that really did speak to an audience. And, you know, what I was doing at WLUW and what I did at Chirp, what I've, you know, done at Chirp, they're not the same. WLUW um, was more of a, a, a true community model station in that like a lot of community stations have block programming where you know you have a couple of hours of punk and then you have a couple of hours of hip-hop and then you have maybe a show about gardening or you have a show about politics or you have a show about you know this 
issue or that issue. And that's not what we do at Cherub. We're, we're purely a music station. And kind of one of the things that I always wanted to do was to create a music station where it's eclectic consistency. So you always know what you're going to get, but you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> so you're never going to tune in and be like, oh, this is the reggae show. And I really don't like reggae. So I'm not going to stay tuned. But you might hear a reggae song. But then four minutes later, you're going to hear something completely different. So I didn't want to work on that block programming model that so much community radio does. Um, so I wanted to try something different on that front. Um, because I feel like that's how you, again, you, you build more loyalty with your listeners when they know they can always tune in and they're always going to hear kind of their, what they expect of the station. Um, even though the station still has the opportunity at every turn to surprise them. I was going to say, every time I listen to Chirp, I'm like, I don't know this song. I like this song, but I don't know this song. And that's like the best thing you can get out of. Yeah. Of the perfect response. Yeah. I really like that. You guys have like, uh, you know, if you listen on, on the web app, uh, it will be like, oh, this is a Chicago artist. This is not a Chicago artist. And I'm like that, that's awesome. Cause then to me, that's like, this is a band I want to go see now. Well, not, maybe not right now because of COVID and everything, but in general, sure. it's a band I want to see. Yeah, um, definitely. So my question is you, you have this, this ethos and you have this drive and this mission for what chirp is, has that evolved over time? What was it initially? And what do you think it is right now? If you're going to give somebody the elevator pitch on chirp, give it to us. Yeah, it's so funny because I don't, it sounds terrible to be like, no, it hasn't evolved. It stayed exactly the same. But um, in a lot of ways, it has stayed the same because I still think that our, our, our sort of core founding principles, which again, date back to WLUW and date back to my college radio days. And what I've always thought is that here are the things. One, people don't just like one kind of music. They like lots of different kinds of music. Sometimes they like music they don't even know that they know, that they, they would like. Um, you have to introduce it to people. So you don't have to just play one kind of music out of fear that if you play lots of different kinds of music, you'll turn people off. People like lots of different kinds of music. Two, people like the personal connection that radio offers. Uh, we started out by saying, your iPod will never make you feel slightly less alone in the world. <laughs> it's now evolved into your Spotify account will never make you feel slightly less alone in the world. The thing that radio offers that's so powerful is that human connection. And that human connection might be that I'm able to not just introduce you to a piece of music that you might not have known otherwise, and not just music that um, Pandora would introduce you to because it sounds exactly like something you already have played before and they've learned from the algorithm what you like. But it also means, it means I can tell you about the music that I've just played. I can give you some facts. I might tell you that they're playing and I might just tell you an interesting factoid. This was recorded in the you know, barn of the grandmother of the lead singer and she felt that the history that it brought down was so important to the intimacy of the song I'll tell you about that but also just the intimacy of hearing another human voice on the other side of the radio and knowing that that person is there in real time speaking to you and never has that been so clearly demonstrated than this past year in this pandemic when people felt so alone sure. and so isolated and we heard from so many of our listeners saying, thank you so much for being there. Like every day I knew I could tune in and I could hear a person and I felt like you were my friend. Like I felt like over time I, I got to know everybody who was on the air and at a time where I couldn't get together with my friends and have these close interpersonal interactions that I would normally have, listening to the radio and hearing the same person week after week and having them share things about their lives and about, you know, not just the music they, they were playing, but also just like the personal stuff they were going through that was so similar to the personal stuff I was going through. That meant so much to me. Like we had so many messages from our listeners saying things like that, saying like, I made chirp part of my routine because all of a sudden I had no routine. You know, I didn't get in my car to commute every day. I didn't have 
these sort of like set things that I did every day. But I knew like I would always turn on Chirp at like one family said they would always turn on Chirp at five o'clock. They had a four year old kid and that like, you know, the the mom and dad and son, they would turn on Chirp and that they would always dance around. And that was just their routine every single weekday. And that, you know, it just became such an intimate part of their lives. And yeah, your Spotify account will not do that for you. So that like intimate personal connection that radio offers and that ability to introduce you to great music, um, you know, whether it's new or old, whether it's popular or unknown, it's that human connection. And that is something that I have never questioned and I have never strayed from. Well, well, certainly the, uh, the you know, the on-air talent is is central to the whole thing about community radio. So what what does that look like at Chirp? I mean, wh- how many people do you have? Um, you know, what's your typical on-air? I don't know. Do we call them DJs? Um, sure. Uh, yeah. What what do they typically look like, and what do you look for when you when you're trying to find somebody who's gonna gonna work well with, with your station? Yeah, uh, Chirp has about two, in normal times. Um, obviously, over the pandemic, everything has been a little different. But in normal times, Chirp has about 250 volunteers, and of those 250 volunteers, about 75 are DJs, and of those 75, about 50 are regular weekly DJs who have a shift every week and the other 25 are subs. So they fill in. And when you come to chirp to volunteer, there's no prerequisite. You can come and have never set foot in a radio station, have no prior experience. And if you're interested in being a DJ, we will train you. Um, And I would say it it is, it's about a third of volunteers who come to Chirp who actually want to be a DJ. And that always is so surprising to me because I can't imagine going to a radio station and not wanting to be on the air. But, you know, right. But since public speaking is the number one fear of Americans, you know, and death is number two, (laughs) public speaking is number one. Um, (laughs) Yeah. If you think about it, that was surprising. And, and, you know, a fair number of people do come to Chirp and they think they never want to be on the air. And then they're there for a couple of years. And then they're like, maybe I do want to be on the air. (laughs) Um, But we train people and we do get a lot of people who have been um, college radio DJs or maybe have worked at a community radio station in another city. But we also get a lot of people who have never, ever been on the air. And we, um, you know, are a volunteer driven organization. I'm the one staff person at Chirp. So one staff person managing 250 volunteers. And so we have volunteers training volunteers when it comes to DJs. And again, we haven't been able to do this. We haven't trained in any new DJs since February of 2020, which has been challenging for us. And I just like all the credit in the world to our current group of DJs who have picked up extra shifts and um, who have made sure that throughout the pandemic, we've been able to keep things just as normal and, and keeping things operating always live and local because we think that's so important. Um, but we really just look for people who are interested in being on the air, who are committed to our mission, who understand our mission, you know, because we do, like I was saying before, like we do have a programming philosophy that is different than what some community radio stations have, where, um, you know, other community radio stations will say, oh, come on in. And if all you want to do is play country music, you can have an hour or two hours and play nothing but country music. And so we don't do that we ask a little more of our DJs. We really ask them to be interested in a lot of different genres and a lot of different eras. And that even if you, you know, hate hip hop and you love emo, that doesn't mean you never get to play hip hop and that you always get to play emo. It means that you always mix up every hour and you play at least a little bit even of the things you don't like because your show is not for you, your show is for the audience. And so as long as people are, are willing to do that and open to the programming philosophy and open to learning, um, we find ways to get people on the air. And, you know, then over time, they move into shifts that might be more appealing to them. A lot of people start later at night or, you know, in overnight hours. Not everybody. Um, sometimes it's hard to fill daytime shows because 
people work during the day, nine to five can be the hardest shift to fill, um, you know, in, in those time slots and their prime listening hours. So sometimes we have newer people who are filling those important slots and we give feedback. Um, we have a programming committee at the station who are, you know, aside from myself, they're all volunteers and they listen to people's shows and give constructive feedback to help people get better when they're on the air. That's amazing. Uh, to create that sort of culture, especially now in, in COVID times is, is really, really impressive. Uh, so I, I did have a question about how you guys program. Um, I see features like you know, on your Facebook page, on an Instagram, you guys will have the features uh, section. How, who is deciding what those people are? What are the parameters for that? Is that like only Chicago artists? Is that, how does that go to a committee? Like how does that get decided? Is that you? No, it's, it's not just me. And the way that the station functions is, again, it's a volunteer-driven radio station. So volunteers are crucial to everything that we do. And volunteers, actually, we have 13 different departments in the station. And these are things like the music department, the promotions department, the features department, the tech department, the marketing department, and so on and so forth. And these are departments that are led by volunteers, once again, managing volunteers, so, um, you know, when you talk about our features department, what we mean by features is these are artist interviews, um, for the most part, occasionally short documentary features. And so we have a couple of features directors, um, Jesse D and Mick Reed, who are longtime Chirp volunteers who have done a lot of artist interviews, and they lead a department that has about 14 interviewers in it, and they accept pitches, you know, we get a ton of pitches from PR people. We also just have our ear to the ground and have interest in what's going on both locally and nationally. And sometimes we reach out to people we want to interview and then they schedule interviews, they assign interviewers, and then our production team edits those interviews down to, uh, you know, make them a little more listenable and, you know, a little more concise. And so, yeah, this, anybody can pitch features, you know, they can send an interview pitch. Um, we have always had a mix of national and local features. Over the course of the pandemic, we've been more focused on local because we really wanted to support the local music scene. It's always been something that's been super essential to everything that we do, playing local music and featuring local artists. But at a time when it's been so hard for artists, when they weren't able to tour and everything, we really wanted to put the bulk of our focus in terms of interviews on local artists. So for the last year, it's been more focused on, on local artists than national artists, but we do interview national artists as well. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed the ones I've, I've checked out for sure. And I really like that it's eclectic. It's not like, you know what you're going to get with the features like you're just like, oh, you know, like when you think of something like Pitchfork, right? You're like, okay, I have like a general sense of what is going to be a Pitchfork review. Whereas this was like, oh, this is all over the place. And I really like that. Right. You know, I think that's something we talk about a lot. We're an independent music station. We're not an indie rock station. We play a lot of indie rock. That's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that we do or that that's our priority. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, well, this might be a very vague question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What does Chicago music mean to you? Oh, boy. <laughs> You're on the spot. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, Chicago music means whatever it means. I don't think it means anything other than one of the things that I think is so interesting and so great about the Chicago music scene and has been my experience over the years that I've, I've been here and been an active participant is I think that the Chicago music scene is really collaborative instead of competitive. I think when you look at New York and LA, there's so much competition and people are really resentful when somebody gets successful and that people, um, you know, artists don't necessarily always want to lift one another up because they're so afraid if they lift somebody up that that hurts them. And I just always feel like Chicago has always been a supportive music scene where people celebrate the success of their peers instead of tearing them down. People like to collaborate in interesting ways and that it just, it just feels like a really supportive scene. It doesn't feel like that sort of negative backbiting, um, you know, um, ultra competitive, we want to be the next superstars. And so we're going to, you know, step on your backs to get there scene that you sometimes hear about in, in, on, on both of the coasts. 
do you feel like that's just the Midwestern ethos that, that makes that happen? Or what do you attribute that to with the Chicago scene? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's probably a little bit of the second city phenomenon where everybody feels like we already have to work hard to be heard and be seen, um, you know, that people don't necessarily think of Chicago. We tend to be overlooked, um, which seems crazy to me because there's so much great music here. But that because we are not an obvious area of focus, I think that people just feel really proud and supportive when people here do succeed instead of feeling like it's somehow like like people think, well, that only reflects well on me. Like I'm part of the Chicago scene as well. So if you have success, that only brings attention to Chicago. It doesn't tear me down because my band didn't, you know, sign this deal or what have you. It means like there's more attention for the city in general. And that, um, you know, I think that most most bands see that as a positive thing. Uh, when you think of a Chicago band, what band do you think of? Uh, right now, I just, I, I've loved Beach Bunny for a long time. And so I've been really so impressed with the success that Beach Bunny has had. Yeah, that new song with, uh, or they, the remix with uh, Tegan and Sarah. And you're like, oh my, this is like a Venn diagram of the things that like, <laughs> had this happen. Yeah, no. And I mean, you know, I remember they, you know, they sent me their first tracks, you know, from their like Beach Bunny gmail address like back in 2016 maybe and i was caught by you know because we get a lot of submissions and it can be hard to keep up but i was just caught by their name i'm like beach bunny that's fun and i listened to their tracks and i'm like oh this is great and i went and saw them and they were playing at some street festival and i'm like oh man these are all like you know just like young you know they're they're young and they're enthusiastic and these songs are great and i love willie's voice and everything and then i just followed them um, you know, for, for the next several years and just to see them progress and, and catch on and have the, these tremendous successes. And, you know, they're like, you know, millions of TikTok views and like on, you know, on late night talk shows and things. And I've just, I've just been so happy for them. I love, I love Beach Bunny. The songs are great. And yeah, I just couldn't be happier. It feels like right now there's like this wave that's coming of, of bands that, and this is gonna make me sound really dated that are like kind of pit like you know pilfering some of the stuff that they did in the 90s and building off of that so like beach bunny rap boys whitney like these this like new wave of, of bands is coming forward that is really cool and i think it's like each one is is like in the same ballpark as one another but they're in different sections if that makes any sense oh yeah beach bunny definitely has some emo there's they have some emo hearts um you know that's for sure rap boys though they're just they're celebrating their 10th anniversary they just got a 10th anniversary record so on vinyl it's so good yeah, so they've they've been at it for a while, um, but I'm yeah yeah happy to see the the attention being paid. I also think it's really interesting because we've gone in a way we've gone back in time to this point where now everything is really singles focused. Um, so people are putting out these tremendous singles, and I think like artists like uh, Rick Wilson and Wyatt Waddell are putting out these these great singles. Um, and I'm always just like eager to see like what's coming next, what's coming next, like one song or two songs isn't enough for me. But it's an interesting, um, you know, an interesting shift. And I think it has to do with people listening on streaming and everything and not necessarily buying albums. But I think there have been just great singles this past year. Yeah, they got to get you on that trip, right? Do you think that's, that's a reflection of, of COVID and just people having more time or the inability of people to go on tour or do you think that's just like a natural organic thing that's happening? I think that, like I say, I think streaming is the biggest part of it. I think COVID contributed to it certainly and people recording at home and it's easier obviously to record a single at home than it is to record a full album at home. But I think the move away from albums was already well underway before COVID. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do you feel like over the past decade uh, and you're on a podcast right now, podcasts become more popular. Spotify is on the rise, right? Has that affected the way that you manage the station? Is that change your priorities? Or are you like, no, we're in, in staunch defiance of these trends. We're in staunch defiance of these trends. <laughs> um, again, I feel like I feel uncomfortable in some ways because I feel like I keep saying I haven't changed at all. I am inflexible. Um, but no, I think that what I see is, first of all, I think it's great that people are enjoying audio. I am a true believer in audio and have been my entire adult life. And so I think podcasts are awesome. And I listen to a lot of them myself. 
But, you know, there was uh, a tweet about a year ago, I think it was, and it seemed like nobody was certain whether it was tongue in cheek or not, where it said something to the effect of, podcasts are so great, it would be really cool if you could do them live in real time so people could respond to things that were happening in real time. And I'm like, yeah, that's called radio. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, again, to this day, I'm, I'm not sure if that, if that was tongue in cheek or if that was truly like a viewpoint from someone who, you know, is a little younger. They've never had a personal relationship with their local radio station. And so they just really thought like, I love podcasts. It would be really cool if I could interact with the podcast host in real time. But um I just think that, you know, I, I continue to say that radio strengths are different than podcasting strengths. They are that immediacy. They are that, you know, podcasts can be super intimate. That is 100% correct. And that is taking that, that value of radio and, and conveying it in that way. But you still have that immediacy factor. And the nice thing about radio always that people have recognized with podcasts, it is a cheap medium to produce. And so when you take that and you combine that, like the cheapness with the fact that like, oh, I can actually respond to something that's happening right now. And, you know, for music radio, unfortunately, a lot of that tends to be deaths, um, you know, so like when Prince died or when Tom Petty died or Eddie Van Halen, like to be able to respond to that right away and realize that people have this this need to like have this sort of shared experience when, you know, there is no monoculture anymore. So these shared experiences are rarer and rarer, but you realize that sometimes grief is where people really want them. And so when Prince died, you just, all of a sudden, we just had a ton of people who were like, we want to hear Prince songs. Can you play this Prince song? Can you play this Prince song? I want to tell you about this story. When I saw Prince, I want to, you know, I want to hear other people's stories about Prince. And like to be able to respond to that emotional need of your listeners in real time and be there for them as this is happening and give them what they need and help them with that outpouring of emotion that they might be feeling. Um, I think that that's still like, that's something that's really important that radio can do that no other medium can do. And I think that just that day-to-day -day thing that I was talking about with COVID where you're just there for people every single day and they start to think of you as, as a friend. They don't necessarily think of you as this like other. And you think about the places that people invite radio in. They're these really intimate spaces that are really different than the way you consume other media. You wake up in the morning to a radio station. So you're laying in bed and your alarm might be a radio station. So you hear this person talking. You get in the shower, you turn on your radio station. Like, so you hear this voice that's with you in the shower. That's about as intimate as it can get. You're in your car driving someplace. You know, you don't listen to radio as a group experience for the most part. It's very one-to-one. -one. And that personal connection, you know, it's increasingly rare in this time. And I think that that is still, like, it has so much value. And that's what I've believed from day one. And it's what I still believe. And it is the core principle of everything that we do at Chirp. Uh, is it easy for you to find people who share that belief with you? Do you have to feel like you're molding people to think the way you think? I think I'm a good evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> I buy that. I'm, I'm sold. I'm yeah. ready to get on the radio. Yeah. I think that, um, I think, you know, that there are a lot of people who are at Chirp who've been there for a long time. And, you know, whether it's because I have been able to like sink this into people's heads or because it was already there for them and it was sort of reaffirming what they already believed. You know, they come to Chirp and they participate and they, they experience it in real life. You know, they get those emails from listeners. They get those phone calls from listeners. Um, they get told how they're involved in these personal moments. They get, you know, asked to play a song because somebody's about to propose to their girlfriend and they want this particular song, that stuff still happens. Um, I think a lot of people think that's for radio from a bygone day, but that, ha that happens. We get those requests. And, um, you know, I think people have those personal experiences and they internalize them and then they pass those along to the new generation that comes in because again, volunteers are training volunteers. Um, but it is something that we talk about at every new volunteer orientation. It's one of the first things that I say. 
um, to welcome new classes of volunteers. And our new classes of volunteers tend to be big. They tend to be 30 to 50 people who come in in every class. It's been a long time. It's been over a year since we had a new volunteer orientation. But, you know, I always say, like, you're clearly here because you're a true believer in radio. You know, a lot of people would be like radio, who cares about radio in 2021? But like, here you are. So already it means something to you. And then I tell them all the things that I have just told you. I tell them stories about, you know, these personal experiences people have shared with us. And hopefully that really does sink in and people do internalize that. And as they spend more and more time with Chirp and they see that happen firsthand, they're like, well, you weren't just BSing me with some idealistic speech at the first volunteer orientation. Like this stuff really does happen. You know, it might not be as widespread as it was in, you know, 1980 or 1965 or, or, or whenever, it, it, you know, when there was, again, more of a monoculture where everybody was listening to the same handful of big radio stations. But there still is that, that hunger for that interpersonal connection and, and radio can really provide that. Yeah, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed my time on the radio. Uh, you have an excellent radio voice, by the way. Oh, thank uh, you. So I'm going to ask you one last chirp question, if that's okay. Sure. And then I have, we have a part of this podcast is we ask people some Chicago-based questions. So uh, if you would humor us with those, that would be great. Uh, <laughs> but my last chirp question is, do you feel like you are doing exactly what you want to do? Is there a, a, a like a chirp 2.0 or are you like, there will never be a 2.0. 1.0 is exactly what we want it to be. I think that um, probably the hardest thing for us is just we want to be able to reach as many people as possible. We're true believers in broadcast. So we worked really hard for um, a broadcast signal. This is something we didn't even touch on, but we actually had to change federal law to be able to apply for a broadcast signal. Um, we were an online station for 10 years and before we had a broadcast signal. But we never gave up on the notion that the broadcast was, was key to what we were doing. And so the broadcast covers the north side of Chicago. And I would love to have a broadcast that covered the entire metro area uh, where everybody was able to hear it on the air. You know, we know more and more people are listening in different ways. They're listening on their smart speakers. They're listening via app. They're just listening to the stream in iTunes or what have you. But um, there is something that's, I don't know, strangely like meaningful about a broadcast signal. Uh, it definitely lends legitimacy to your operation. We found that out time and time again. So if, you know, if I were ever handed the opportunity to have a broadcast signal that actually covered all of metropolitan Chicago and um, a, a way to fund it, I would, I would take that in a heartbeat. But I think, you know, when it comes to the programming, I think that we would love to um, have people who are live on the air 24-7 because, again, we are true believers in live radio. And right now our midnight to 6 a.m. programming is automated. We used to sign off at midnight and just be silent from midnight to 6, which was super old school. Um, we actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, we implemented some, auto some automation for overnights. Um, so I would love to have, you know, have you tune in at 3 a.m. and hear a live DJ, you know, who is programming in real time. And I still hope that we'll get there. But by and large, I feel like what we're doing is what we want to do. And, um, you know, I think that just letting more people know about the station, continuing to, to build audience. We know what we're doing is, is, is niche. We know it's not for everybody. We know it's for people who are true music lovers. Right. Um, it's not for people who want to hear the big hits of the day repeated over and over again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we definitely want to let more people who, who love music and maybe especially those people who are a little bit older, who like were super passionate about music when they were younger, but they kind of lost track. They don't go out to see shows. They have jobs that don't allow that. They have kids, but they still would care about music and would like to know about independent music in their community. And a lot of those people are listening. Like there are big kind of national independent brands like KEXP out of Seattle. We want, you know, everybody in Chicago who's listening to KEXP, <laughs> I want them to at least know about Chirp as an alternative. I love that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to ask you a, a variety of Chicago-based questions now. Uh, okay. 
So we are, are firm believers in all things Chicago music. That's why we're talking to you today. Uh, we've been lucky enough to talk to you today. Uh, what is your favorite local Chicago music venue? My favorite local music venue. Wow. There are so many different reasons for so many different venues. Um, I guess I will have to say first, it's the hideout. I got married there. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Love the hideout. You know, um, just so many great shows over the years, um, such an intimate venue and such a great sense of community. But I also feel like I, it's really important to me to shout out the Metro because, yeah. um, you know, the Metro just feels like the granddaddy of them all. It's the place that I saw like my first ever club show in Chicago. And I've just seen so many memorable shows uh, over the years at Metro. And it's just, it, it always sounds great. Um, it's just like, it's, it's so near and dear to my heart because it feels like such a formative experience for me in Chicago. Feels like home, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what we're going for. We yeah. want to champion and support those local venues. Yeah, those- and, and not, not to sidetrack Mark's question, but I think, you know, we were talking about the whole you know, Chicago music scene, I think one of the strong points we have is we have so many iconic independent music venues. I mean, there are so many good ones. It's it's kind of unfair him asking you to pick one. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, then, I, you know, I'm going to skip the, what's your top 10 favorite Chicago band? No, <laughs> uh, no the next question is, uh, we, we like to ask people this. Are you a tavern thin crust pizza lover or are you a deep dish person? <sighs> I guess I'm actually more of a deep dish fan when you bring when you bring those two to the table. I love a Neapolitan pizza like Spockanopoly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. or yeah. coal fire. Um, but you know, I mean, growing up in Illinois and making forays into the city, like with my aunt and uncle. Um, like Uno's, Lou Malnati's, that was a sure sign. Like when I was a kid, of like going to the city. So that, you know, awesome. my heart. All right. We'll, we'll take it. You're, you're our first deep dish person. So <laughs> way to step out into the unknown. Uh, yeah. What, so being a local music lover, what's your favorite local uh, record shop? Lori's planet of sound. Oh. Uh, my neighborhood record store, um, you know, from the time that I moved to this neighborhood about 20 years ago, I, was just wandering around the neighborhood, um, just figuring out what was here. And I felt like this was like, just exactly the independent record store of my dreams, like very focused on on the neighborhood, could answer your questions, um, knowledgeable, but um, never making you feel excluded. Yeah. And they they have like a a deep well of music, you know, you're going to find a lot of random things there. And yeah. they help you find stuff too. Um, yeah. I've yeah. been there before myself. Yeah. Great staff, great selection. Just, just like, yeah, absolutely. Perfect city records, independent record store. Um, so my next question is, what have you been listening to lately? Like what record is really moving you right now? Oh my gosh, this is always the hardest question. And, um, you know, even as I try to prepare for this, I always feel like this is the one that freezes me the most. Um, I had mentioned Beach Bunny earlier, and um, I really do uh, love everything that Beach Bunny puts out. And so that, um, you know, the reworking of what is it, Cloud9? Oh, I'm terrible at this is what I've realized with with streaming uh, anymore is like, even as a DJ, half the time I don't know song titles, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, the, the reworking of the song with Tegan and Sarah from Beach Bunny is, is so great. Yeah. And I feel like I just go back to everything that, that Beach Bunny has ever done. Steve Dawson has a new record coming out um, that's just lovely. And, um, you know, that one has been really hard to stop listening to as well. Um, just one of the, you know, great, great songwriters in Chicago who's been at it for such a long time and his output just never, you know, it's, it's just remarkably consistent. And um, I've just uh, really loved everything that he's done. And like I said, I had also like 
just to go back to somebody else who I had mentioned earlier, Rick Wilson just keeps putting out single after single too. And they are all so catchy. And I'm a dance. I'm a dancer. I love to dance. <laughs> and so I feel like every Rick Wilson single um, at a time where I have so badly needed to like move my body. Like uh, I feel like every one of his songs actually makes me get up and move. And so I've really enjoyed like everything that he's put out over the past, I, you know, how many singles has he put out over this past six months? I think there've been at least six or seven singles and I've liked every one of those. Uh, so I'm going to ask you our last question, which is uh, our way we're going to end all our podcasts. So I'm going to show you this beer right here. Uh, we are big purveyors and, and believers in, in cheap beer. So what is your favorite cheap beer? Oh no. Oh no. I am not a beer drinker. <laughs> uh, we're, we we said we're going to run into one of these people one day. Okay, exactly. we'll we'll move yeah. on. Favorite yeah. drink have out. You're at a, you're at the metro. What are you going to get to drink at the bar? I'm going to get the house red. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that's nineteen. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I just want to give you a moment to to make any shout outs you'd like to. I'm interested to know if like I want to volunteer for Chirp. How do I get involved in that? If I want to donate to Chirp, how do I get involved with that as well? Sure. Uh, donating to Chirp is easy and tax deductible. We're a 501c3. You can give to Chirp at chirpradio.org slash donate now. And as far as volunteering goes, like I say, we're on a bit of a hiatus and accepting new volunteers because of COVID. We're hoping that we're going to be able to have a new volunteer orientation in uh, the fourth quarter of 2021, but you can go to volunteers.chirpradio.org and fill out the new volunteer application. And when you do that, we'll send you an email once our next new volunteer orientation is scheduled. We don't know when it's going to be, but we do hope that there will be one in 2021, a bit later in the year. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, Sean. Uh, Once again, this is Sean Campbell with uh, Chirp Radio. And we'd like to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us about your vision, your passion, your baby, Chirp Radio. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening today. We are no wristbands. We drink for free. Music, of course, has been provided by Merlin Wall. Please check them out on Spotify or on Bandcamp. Please also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at No Wristbands and check out our website at NoWristbands.com. 